question. What was the guy's name? I was going to just tell a story, and then I realized that you don't care at all about golf. Generally not. Does it involve unicorns? No, that's not golf. A thesaurus? You're actually getting farther away. Hmm. Does it involve clubs? Sort of. Okay, I'm almost interested. Proceed. Have you ever heard of Jack Nicholas? Yes. He's only probably the third most famous golfer of all time. Behind Tiger Woods. Right. And also Woods Comet Tiger. Oh yeah, him. Fourth <laughs> fourth most popular. Of course. No, I was just watching a video of him from like when he was in his twenties and thirties. The definition of crazy eyes. <laughs> Like, he stalked the golf course. Like, he looked at the putter in his hands like it was a loaded weapon. And he looked at the hole where the ball was supposed to go like a target with malice aforethought. Wow. Terrifying. And so what you're saying is I should go watch these clips or just enjoy it through your eyes? Um, I can't imagine that anybody enjoys it, like, at all. Because it's genuinely terrifying? Yeah, it's more of a, um, maybe someone can love a sport too much. (laughs) Like, there's like a thing that happens after hours on the greens with Jack, and you just don't want to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to whatever golf course. We have 13 caddies. A week later, we have 12. (laughs) Oh, Poor Wenseless. He saw something he wasn't supposed to see. And he had too many syllables in his name. Jack's not a, not down for that. <laughs> no, he's not. What do you think you are, a gnome? <laughs> Get out of here with that noise. Oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. My fingernails extend in length at a normal pace, as does my certainly not artificial hair. Truly, I don't know who keeps perpetuating these... false rumors about my non-humanity. With me is Chris, who's also here. It's literally a piece of AstroTurf (laughs) on your scalp. No, it's it's not green. It's extremely green. It's it's not plastic. It's so green it's not easy. It never is. (laughs) Moving on. Are you going to move on or? I can't. I can't get past it. <laughs> oh, how you doing, Chris? What's going on? What's good? Um, so this article I wrote using the assistance of uh, dictation. Okay. And dictation is fun. I do not care for it. Some of the things that it thinks that I say are so bizarre that I had no choice but to leave them in. <laughs> I was, I was wondering if you were going to say some of the things that it thinks you said are better than the actual things you said. They're certainly different. Mm. And better. Well, it started with Abigail. <laughs> okay, because I saw that in the script, <laughs> and that sent me down a 20-minute rabbit hole of trying to figure out what Abigail meme you were referencing, which there isn't one. Nope. Well, well. Well, there, there kind of is. There isn't one Yet. yet. Oh, well, that's fun. What what were you trying to dictate? I don't remember. Okay. What was the general topic I'm of the not thing? sure. Okay. Well, I guess we'll just have to wade in together and see what happens. Let's do that. Okay. Abigail. <laughs> Abigail? Maybe that's what it was. Maybe the dictation software was presenting itself. As Abigail? Yeah. Which makes, think about it, because my other world-famous dictation output is Moira. That's true. So maybe the input is Abigail. Hey, deep cut for the Buffer Overflow fans (laughs) out there. Both of them. (laughs) All two. Okay. (laughs) So, what we're going to talk about is a lot of boring philosophy. Excellent. But it's important philosophy. It's about IT security. All right. So the goal of security is to keep resources, what's the word? Secure. Oh, yes, that. And the trouble with this is, it's a little tiny word and a real big topic. Right. One that can get super frustrating the second you get away from the hypothetical and start talking about, but 
what do I do next? Right. Any real world application of theoretical security um, is frustrating and difficult, like the rest of the real world. And I mean, this is one of those areas where the idea of scope creep is really crazy because you start with, I want to lock down this user and you end with the entire universe is out to get me. Right. And also, as far as the security person is concerned, the most secure thing is the thing that's not even powered on, locked in a box in someone's basement and guarded by like half of the U.S. military. And on fire. <laughs> so that's very secure, right. but not very usable. Right. Right. So there's a balance. Yes. Attention, one might say. And the trouble with security is it keeps changing. There's a lot of stuff out there that you have to pay attention to. And that can become particularly annoying for a, cus a company that doesn't have an IT staff. Ooh, yeah, that's a problem. Or a small staff. It's just people recognize that being online is important for pretty much every business. But if you're not a computer company, you really don't want to pay attention to this junk. It gets in the way. It's a hassle, right? Right, right. And excessively more important with this whole digital transformation. So... Places that were typically not online before and didn't have to worry about this are now very much online and do. Right. The example I always use is the local flower shop down the street. Oh, side point. If you're actually buying flowers, please, please buy them from the local flower shop down the street. 1-800-Flowers is like the Uber Eats of flower delivery, and I don't mean that in a nice way. <laughs> Fair enough. So... Let's just talk about a couple of the objections that people th uh, have in their heads about security in terms of modifying business behavior to be more secure. The biggest one is security is too expensive. You've heard this one a lot. Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Okay, good. This is especially prevalent, again, if you don't have a lot of time to spend on the stack. You don't want to waste money on something that you don't think about or don't think is important. Unfortunately, as you alluded to, if you have a business, the chances are you have some kind of public-facing IT presence. You have a website. You have a bank that you connect to uh, that you would have a point-of-sale store or a cash register. Uh, you send online invoices etc. Whether et you know it or not, this is digital ephemera that is connected to you and you have to make sure it's secure. If they were compromised, this would cost you. It would cost you money. It would cost you reputation. It would cost you downtime. So really the argument you could make is, can you afford not to invest in security? God, I feel gross. Yeah. The problem with that is the same problem we've always had with disaster recovery. It's you have to pay money now for something you can't really see the impact of. Right. You're paying money for something that you might never need. Right. Or if, you, if it's doing its job, it's doing its job invisibly. Right. And you don't really feel the pain of that until something does happen, at which point, from a security perspective, it's too late. <laughs> right. Because once you're down, if you're not prepared, and we'll talk about backups at the end, but if you're not pre prepared for that kind of downtime, you're down for a week. At least, yeah. Um, but really, when it comes to the security, this is the point that I want to drive home all the way through here, is that it's philosophical. If you think about security, you're immediately more secure. You will approach every digital transformation <laughs> with a security mindset. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't cost you any money. It just costs you a different way of thinking. Right. So a lot of security, from my perspective, is philosophical and procedural, operational, rather than writing a check. Right. So that's what we want to focus on, because if we can get that part right, it minimizes a lot of the other stuff, and you don't immediately panic when a salesperson gets all up in your business. <laughs> right. So the next two uh, objections to security are often very closely related to one another. Security isn't necessary for my business, or security makes everything too complicated. Okay, so the first one is just categorically untrue. Yeah, that's the luxury versus necessity argument. The second one uh, is not wrong. Security probably will make things more complicated, but sometimes that's not a bad thing. Security versus convenience. Yes. Yeah, and if you don't have a philosophy where security is important to you, to your employees, to your business, 
it's very easy to go into those cases where we can, as technical professionals, can make an easy argument that they're a fallacy. Mm -hmm. But for a regular business, they're just like, I'm trying to sell flowers, man. Stop making me log in every half an hour, Microsoft. <laughs> oh, shoot. I wasn't going to name names, Microsoft. Ouch. It could be anybody, Microsoft. It could. Resoft. <laughs> and the trouble with this is, as I alluded to, one of the biggest places these concerns come from is the security market itself. I am not going to name names, Microsoft, but there are definitely organizations that have no problem whatsoever with a strategy of trying to scare you into opening your wallet. You just described almost every security company ever. That's fair. <laughs> but we're not going to name names. Microsoft. <laughs> Whenever a salesperson starts throwing around FUD, the old fear, uncertainty, and doubt, regarding security, you should double check. Mm -hmm. Point is, security vendors have a vested interest in making people think the only way to be secure is to spend a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Usually, annoyingly, as a subscription. Well, recurring revenue is the what the engine that drives SaaS. The little engine that could bankrupt you. But you don't have to solve every security issue with your Amex card. Now, to be fair, there is a place for security that you pay for. Mm -hmm. It's not a zero dollar game. Right. But it is also not an infinite dollar game. So we're going to play a game of let's find the balance. Okay. So, a couple of categorical things to think about when it comes to making security better for your company without spending infinite money. Okay. Number one, educationing. Whoa. I know. People need to learnify. Yes. <laughs> and I think, actually, this can be broken up into two different sections. One is business security, and the other is individual security. Okay. So business security has to come from the top. If you're the business owner, if you're in the C-suite, if you're in a position of leadership or authority, you have to have that mindset and that philosophy, and that will trickle down to everybody else. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things, as we're going to get back to a couple of times, is this security versus convenience or the luxury versus necessity. So here's a good one. Quick, think of the top three security problems that any company might have. Go. Uh, malware. Okay. Usernames and passwords. Okay. And I'm going to go with ransomware, which is slightly different. Right. Okay. Now, make a big difference in your head between Fortune 500 companies and the flower shop down the street. What's the difference? The Fortune 500 company has a lot more money, a lot more employees, and a lot more attack vectors. But what does that have to do with the big three things that you just said? Very little. Okay. <laughs> they still probably have the... Same basic security concerns. Yeah. The difference comes down to scale. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't come down to philosophy. In fact, one of the big things to remember is the SMBs have been more targeted. And we have evidence to back this up over the past decade at least. Primarily because there are so many of them. And a lot of them have an idea in their head that, oh, I'm so small, no one's ever going to try to attack me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they're also very likely to pay out. Well, everybody is. I think SMBs are more likely to pay out because they don't have a cybersecurity team that could recover after a ransomware attack or would have a solid DR plan to get their data back without having to pay the money. Yeah, I guess that's true. SMBs are just like, well, I guess I go find a Bitcoin machine and, <laughs> and buy 26 coin bit defy wallet lunas. Dot Terra. Dot, dot ETH. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's the biggest educational point, number one. Nobody is too small or too secure to be a target. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of scale. Right. The reality is, the list that you gave us is great, but it could vary from year to year. And, in fact, it probably does. Um, but the fixes for all of that stuff is probably going to be pretty consistent. For example, one of the things you said was securing user accounts. Usernames yep. and passwords. Mm -hmm. That underpins a lot of access control-based hacks or viruses or malwares or whatever. The underlying thing is still usernames and passwords. Yep. If you make sure that's secure, a lot of these threats are still going to be there. You're still going to get attacked by them, but you've, you're beginning to build your defenses. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things you can do as a business, and this is where it comes down to, we are telling everybody that this is important. Implement a security control. Tell people, tell your employees, we require MFA to keep your usernames and passwords secure. And you're on a 14-day refresh because we want to make your life miserable. <laughs> but the point is, it comes from the top down. And everybody might grumble about it, but they'll do it. Because mm -hmm. they don't have a choice. And that's interesting, too. No exceptions. Including the CEO. Especially the CEO. Yes. One of the biggest problems is, yes, it's annoying to have to punch in an MFA every whatever, 14 days, 28 days, every 12 minutes, Microsoft. Um, but it's important to keep secure and it, keep it consistent across your entire organization. Yeah. So as an example, uh, organization that I worked for many years ago was a smaller company, you know, 250 employees roughly. And the entire top brass, so we're talking CEO, COO, CFO, all didn't like changing their passwords. So they didn't. Right. They were in the special group that did not have expiring passwords and they used the same password for years. They also had access to the most sensitive information in the entire organization. So who should be the most secure person that we're worried about? The person that's asking for security exceptions. Exactly. <laughs> and this is sadly all too common. Mm -hmm. um, so another way to stay educated is to sign up for some free resources. Because there's a ton of them out there. Mm -hmm. Some of them are government. Some of them are industry. All of them are free. And you can get ones that are general. You can get ones that are targeted. A good one that I like comes from the SANS Institute. They send you an email once a week. And it just states, here's some crap that's happening. Here's how you can make sure you're defended against it. We'll see you next week. All and right. the important thing is, it's not coming from a vendor. It's not trying to sell you something. It's not trying to scare you into anything. Dozens of these exist. Some of them are specific, right? You can find one that is probably just for hospitals. You can find one that is just for flower shops. It's very pretty. Lots of pastels. Yes. But the type of... Uh, the goal of this type of education is to build that philosophy, build that mindset with repetition. Hey, mm -hmm. MFA is important because. Hey, mm -hmm. MFA is important because. And eventually you'll just have that in your head. And then when you do talk to a vendor, hey, what's your MFA? Because that's important. Right. It, it occurs you to even ask the question. Exactly. Whereas before when you were shopping around for your flower shop accounting software, you might not think of it. And it'll also help you start to ask more sophisticated questions just from knowledge, not from paying any money, but just because you know. Mm -hmm. For example, MFA. There's a couple different kinds. Even with the codes, there's ones that only operate by sending you a text message. Yep. This is still technically MFA. It is by far the weakest kind of MFA because SIM type attacks and things that you can do to compromise a phone are a lot easier than anything that gets you a code, whether it is an app installed or a YubiKey, if it's a physical device that you need, mm -hmm. far better. Yes. So if you're trying to compare and contrast between two SaaS products for your company, you can now ask them, what's your policy? Is it text messages or is it a device? And then you can use that as a decision point. Right which then drives the market towards more secure, secure solutions. Exactly. Now, 1A is general user education. Why? Because it's all connected. Phishing and social engineering, which should have been on your list, um, exist because hackers can get personal data. Mm -hmm. That means that they can pretend that they're you. They can convince a help desk, an unrelated administrator, somebody that's just worked an 11-hour shift and doesn't care anymore to do something dumb, to give you access they should not have done. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, now a hacker has access, a foothold into your organization. Right. You know, one problem along these lines, it's easy to fix. People accidentally share the information that they use to solve the, quote, security questions that websites often ask you in case you forget your password. Which is why when you fill that stuff in for password recovery, 
You shouldn't use real information. What street did you grow up on? Volcano Lane. But I did grow up on Volcano Lane. It I was, was talking about me. Oh, it was at the intersection of Volcano Lane and Crater Alley. Deep breaths. <sighs> <laughs> so one other problem here is an employee can grumble and follow the rules, but often will get cavalier with their own life, their own stuff. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is, like I said, we're all related. So they could become an attack vector in a way that they did not necessarily anticipate. So let me tell you a little story. It's a true story. I have uh, anonymized some data, mm -hmm. just in the case of... It's about me, isn't it? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a seven-step process as to how a major, major company got compromised. Mm -hmm. Step one, a hacker picked a giant target for hacker-type reasons. Most of the time, like we said at the top, this is freaking random. Right. Number two, the hacker cased the target on LinkedIn, built a list of who works there. What are their mm -hmm. hey, job all descriptions? publicly available data. Exactly. Found an employee who in the, uh, what's that thing called at the top? It's the, like the their header profile. image. Yeah. It was a link to their personal website. Okay. Which fine. Some yeah. people do that. No big deal. Trouble is, this page was self-hosted by that employee, and it was hosted from their residence. Ah. Meaning it was from their personal residential Verizon or whatever IP. Right. So when you did a DNS lookup for their website, you got the public IP of where their traffic is coming from. Correct. Which, if you took this even further, you could get their address from that. Mm-hmm. But this is not what happened. What happened was that personal page was immediately hacked because, well, I shouldn't. We're not naming names, but because WordPress. <laughs> Static pages for the win. <laughs> A PHP admin page was publicly exposed, and the application, which was self-hosted, was entirely unpatched, which is unfortunately very common. Very common. The hacker now had a foothold inside of this employee's home network. Guess mm -hmm. what else is on this home network? Well, since we've all been locked in our houses for three years, <laughs> I think I can guess. His home laptop, <laughs> which he was easily able to access because implicit sharing, right? He's at home. He's secure. I'm not a target. Mm-hmm. I'm making up a lot of sound effects. I'm really enjoying them. I'm going to pull those out of the recording and then reuse them. Fantastic. All right. So the hacker got to the laptop, which had SSH keys, which of course were not encrypted. Why would they be? He was able to get to root access on the laptop as well, which was also not password protected. Mm. The hacker was then able to use this access and the information from the laptop to create a VPN connection to the business, mm -hmm. log into systems with the SSH keys that weren't secured, and access the database and exfiltrate files. Okay. So. So to back up, <laughs> this all started because an employee had posted their personal website on LinkedIn and they were self-hosting that website in at their residence, which provi provided an attack vector for the hacker. Correct. So nothing to do with company policies necessarily. Right. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't, it did not matter how much security there was at the company. Because the company's perspective, there was nothing wrong. Right. This was just a regular employee logging in. So the intrusion det detection system is like, no, that's fine. That's just Derek messing around on a database, downloading 12 petabytes like he always does. It's what Derek does. You know, he eats lobsters and he accesses databases. This is not FUD. This is the kind of thing that happens. Mm -hmm. And the best part about it is, with education, there's all of these steps could have been remediated for zero dollars. Right. The employee did not have to pay anything. He just had to be a little more careful. Mm -hmm. right, to the point that you made at the top of this little escapade. Hosting a static website on almost every major cloud provider is free. Yeah. 100% free. Meaning, even if he did that, and that was compromised, it stops there. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, there are, thing, there are controls that could have been put in place on his work laptop that would have helped with this. But yeah, user education uh, is definitely paramount 
in this. Just just having a level of security awareness. Right. And in this case, another security awareness thing would have been password protect your SSH keys, even on your home laptop. Right. Yes, it's annoying to have to unlock the key when you log in, but it stops something like this from happening. Right. So the next major philosophy to pay attention to is security by default, utilizing the tools that exist on the products you already have. Because this is one big thing about philosophy is use it if you got it. Right. A lot of security is built into stuff already. Mm -hmm. So one thing that's nice is over the past couple of years, there's been a real movement. Vendors have embraced this kind of an idea. Even... Microsoft, everybody's favorite, extremely justified, security-deficient punching bag, <laughs> has made some significant strides in the security products that they offer out of the box, especially for end users. Mm -hmm. For example, when you or your employee install a uh, Windows desktop, Windows 10 or 11, the firewall is enabled by default. Leave it on. Yeah, please do. <laughs> If you need to make exceptions, you can on an individual basis, but you shouldn't. You should not have a need for incoming connections to your workstations, period. Yes. If you have incoming connections, you don't have a workstation, you have a server. Quite literally, <laughs> that's the definition of a server. So just leave the firewall on. If the firewall doesn't let you do something, it's for a reason. Yes. Same thing for Windows Defender Antivirus. Also free. Yeah. Also, over the past couple of years, has gotten really good. Not bad. Now, if you have an enterprise antivirus, fine. I'm not going to say that Microsoft is the absolute best in the world, but it is the freest. <laughs> it comes with Windows. Right. <laughs> if you don't have another product, just use Defender. Just yeah. do it. Just use Defender. Mm-hmm. Another example is don't use the administrator account. Once again, the default setup for Windows 10 and 11 does a really good job talking about the dangers of the administrator account. Yes. This is a far cry from the Microsoft XP days where people would use the admin account for everything. Once again, for convenience sake. Hey, even far a cry from the bad old days of like Windows 95 and 98 where you were always the administrator. You were only the administrator. <laughs> because there was nothing else. Right. So, that's bad. Yes. These days, once the system is installed, it is possible to disable or severely restrict access to the administrator account. This helps a user help themselves. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the time, if you have a system set up where they have a user account, they can't install anything. And if they can't install anything, they can't install malware. Some malware. Right. Well, it's not perfect, but it's, it's better. Better. <laughs> Betterer. Another thing you can do is utilize some free services that change defaults that your enterprise offers. One of them is use a secure DNS. By default, DNS will just say, here's a host name, what's the IP, and it will give you an IP. Mm -hmm. There are services that exist that maintain lists of bad IPs, meaning all these IPs are associated with a botnet just block traffic. Right. Return a 127.001 cannot ever get there. Mm -hmm. A good one an example of this is Quad9. So everybody knows Google's DNS is 8.8.8.8. Indeed. Quad9 is... You can do it. 9.9.9.7. You're so close. Damn it. 9.9.9.9. .9 and all it does... You make that change at your router level, it will be distributed through DHCP to all the systems in your system, uh, all your systems in your system. <laughs> in your network? All your systems in your network that use it. Mm -hmm. And then boom, if they accidentally do click a malformed link that would attempt to send them to one of these blacklisted IP addresses, it just wouldn't work. Because the reality is people make mistakes. Sometimes it's very hard to check Every single URL you click on. Well nigh impossible. Stuff happens. Indeed. So this is a way to help them, again, help your users help themselves. Right. And to be fair, there are more advanced levels of this. There are products that are not free that do the exact same thing. It's going to depend on what you need. 
mm-hmm. but we're talking about things that are zero dollars. And if you use the base level DNS service from nine 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 you're so negative nine. So here's another one. Uh, This rolls into business operations and procedure. Patch your stuff. Patch all your things, please. Turn on automated patching. Yeah. Every major operating system puts out two different kinds of patches. One we can loosely call a feature enhancement, Mm -hmm. and the other we can strictly call security. Most of the time, you can make a different a separation between the two. Mm-hmm. Feature enhancing is usually major or minor version upgrades. They're probably on the nice to have list. Sometimes you really don't want list. That's true too. <laughs> they don't have to be immediate. Mm-hmm. Security patches should be immediate, essential as soon as humanly possible. If not sooner, right? Ideally sooner. Mm. If you can install the patch before the vendor puts it out, that's best. Yes. Now, it is true that sometimes patches can sometimes cause problems, but they are almost always the feature side. (laughs) And they are actually falling away in terms of the likelihood that it's going to cause an outage or an Mm -hmm. incident of any kind. There are certainly environments where, regardless of the patch type, it's still such a controlled and tightly regulated environment that there's a process that all patches have to go through and that may slow down things. But the important thing to keep in mind is a lot of the time the compliance and regulations are put in place to enhance security. So you can make a pretty solid argument about streamlining your patching process to whoever the compliance person is who's standing in your way. Right. And another thing you can do here, which is a slightly more advanced thing, but is still free is automate that especially for security patches because they're going to be a lot more focused and narrow. Mm-hmm. It's not like going to, you know, from 1805 to 1909 in the Windows world. I'm making up numbers, but you know what I mean. That's what they're... 1903? Sure. Why not? Next one. I love this one. Monitoring. Yay. Once you have a system, especially if you have systems... You need to monitor them, and Mm -hmm. you need to do it with a tool. Keeping up with the information provided by monitoring systems is essential to security and performance. Monitor systems for signs of attack, yes, but also get data out of the systems. Users' logins, users' activities, uploads and downloads. You can get all this out of logs into a monitoring system for free. It can be expensive. It does not have to be. Right. One thing that's fun is... Everybody who is a computer person has opinions on this topic. (laughs) It's true. My favorite thing to do is to walk through a conference and just crop dust tables by saying, you know what? I really think that Nagios is trash and just keep walking. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's just pure evil. But really, Zabbix, Nagios, Prometheus, probably literally dozens more, Cacti. There are so many products Mm -hmm. in this space. So many. Yeah. And they're free. I'm free like a puppy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, (laughs) if you're going to do it right, it does require a lot of tuning and upkeep. And storage. And storage. But one side benefit to getting into a monitoring habit like this is that you're also going to be accidentally falling into inventory management. Because if you're monitoring everything aggressively... You're going to know all of your systems, which Mm. means you're going to know if you stop using one. Right. One of the biggest challenges with that security-minded approach to monitoring is the dynamic nature of modern applications where, at least from a virtual machine and container perspective, they tend to appear and disappear at a frightening pace. Right. So you do need some sort of persistent location where logs are being streamed and you need your logging solution to automatically be deployed to these objects so that it's able to track them as their life cycle, you know, accelerates. Yeah. And that's a good point too. I didn't really, I didn't throw anything in there about that because it would have gone down a rabbit hole, but automation is a huge deal Mm -hmm. in security. 
to exactly the point you're making. If you have infrastructure as code, you can put in a line that says, spin up a Zabbix client and send all the logs to our Elk server. Right. Then if it exists for 30 seconds or 30 years, you're covered. Now, monitoring is great, but you also do want to test the environment occasionally. Yeah. Now, you can pay a company to do this, and mm-hmm. I recommend it, especially if you're very new to this, at least once or twice so you understand what's lo- what they're looking for and why. Mm-hmm. But once again, there are products in this space to test security for free. Yep. A really good one, and one that's important if you're uh, studying for security exams, not naming names, <laughs> is Nikto. Nikto is a command line application supported by the community. Source code is available. It's on GitHub. Dead simple. Download it. Point it at an IP address and hit go. And it will scan a website and dump out what it finds. And it's almost always based off of CSVs, publicly available and well understood hacks or bugs or vulnerabilities. And it'll just say, this looks interesting. This is connected to problem X, Y, and Z. This is a cross-site Scripting. scripting issue mm-hmm. very simple command line input text-based output and it i mean there are ones that are faster but it's right. free hey all right point it at your uh you know at your uh, employees per- personally hosted website <laughs> see what happens it's fun <laughs> another one that is free and is actually a little bit more robust is called nessus now nessus has been around for a little while but it's owned by a company called tenable mm-hmm they still have a free tier. Now, this is definitely a freemium thing, and it does a lot more than just websites. Yes. But you can scan 16 IP addresses inside of your organization indefinitely for free. Not bad. And the final thing that I wanted to talk about is backups. Do we need to? Well, we're going to, I know, uh, we're running out of time, so I'm going to go quickly. (laughs) Okay. But backups are important. Backups are a part of security. Why are they a part of security? Because they are the last resort. Indeed. To the point that we made at the top, if you don't have backups and you start from scratch, you're looking at probably a week, and that's probably optimistic. Yeah. (laughs) Some of that data is just gone, and it's gone forever. So the conventional wisdom is a backup is just, uh, we're checking and protecting our data from an accidental loss. But my definition is backups are the last gasp of protection to keep your organization operational in the event of a catastrophic failure, which is better. A little bit. Now, backups in the same sense, there is going to be a cost. Backup software is not free. The space is not free. But if you're being responsible, you're going to do backups anyway. So do backups right. Yeah. Do them regularly. (laughs) Do them on every system. And test them. Test them. One common backup rule to follow is known as 3-2-1. In short, this means you keep three separate copies of your data. One is the production, and two are independent backup copies that are stored on two different types of media, one of which is off-site. Mm-hmm. So that's important, meaning that the backups are separate from one another. And not on the same storage array. And geographically separate. (laughs) So if you do have an incident where you have like a ransomware that locks your backups on site, you've got your offsite backups to recover from. Right. Because once again, you want to be able to recover, period. (laughs) (laughs) And this is an important way of making sure that you're able to do that in the event of the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much it. I mean, we could keep going. But we really we had to stop somewhere. I suppose. There's a lot of moving parts, and the things that get discussed and become a big deal change from time to time. Even in the course of this recording, I know we've been bouncing around concepts like a toddler on a sugar high. <laughs> but I think the main points are, and jump in if you think I missed one. Okay. Security has to be a philosophy that the business and employees embrace. Mm-hmm. Nothing should be running in your business that you don't absolutely need. And everything should be monitored and patched. Anything that should be running, users should be accessing at the lowest level of permissions. Mm -hmm. The way that they access that should be secure, meaning that hard drives are encrypted 
and users require MFA. And take care with your backups. Do them, do them right, and test them. I That kind of covers it pretty well. That's an excellent summary. I'm amazing. Wait, I said that out loud, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. Lightning r- r- round? Round lightning. Good talent is hard to find and keep. Microsoft has committed to almost doubling its compensation budget to help out its junior and mid-level employees. This is in part due to the rampant inflation the world is currently experiencing, which, like, Microsoft could probably help out in other ways, but also because employees have been shown a better way. The Great Resignation, or the Great Reorganization, whatever you want to call it, along with the pandemic, has shown people that they can work from anywhere, and still be just as, if not more, effective than they were when they were working in an office and constantly interrupted by Derek about the damn lobsters. (laughs) Partner that with a booming tech sector, desperate for qualified talent, and tech workers can start calling the shots. Which means that Microsoft now has to have a way of retaining that talent that they already have and attracting new talent in an increasingly competitive market. So, yay for the employees that are getting more money. And, and tech companies, hey, follow Microsoft lead and pay people what they're worth. The deal that Elon struck to buy Twitter is just continuously, staggeringly, astonishingly <laughs> bad. The, the mind boggles. In the latest episode of Stoned Financially Illiterate Dude Bro Pops Off at the Mouth, signs terrible contracts, and forced to follow through on his insane braggadocio to the detriment of literally everyone, is it looks like the Musk purchase of Twitter will happen. And it's going to be terrible. (laughs) Entertaining. For everyone. (laughs) Not least for Twitter themselves. Why, you ask? Because of that so bad for everyone that it should be illegal modern venture capital tool, the leveraged buyout. Mm. Short story. Twitter hasn't really made a profit, basically ever. Ever. And they do carry X amount of debt. Mm. Their current interest expense is around $51 million yearly, so not terrible, especially for a multi-billion dollar company. But... Because the deal that Musk struck to buy Twitter involves profound stupidity (laughs) and not, you know, actual cash, after the purchase, Twitter's interest expense will balloon to at least $750 million. (sighs) Because God forbid Musk himself be on the hook for the purchase he insisted upon, right? Right. The other option is that Musk walks away and pays the $1 billion penalty that he also agreed to. But he won't do that. He'd rather let Twitter burn to the ground because of the debt he brought upon them. Oh, and regardless of what he actually says, ironically enough, on Twitter, he can't get out of the deal because there's bots. Why? Because he opted out of due diligence. (laughs) This is like buying a house and foregoing a home inspection. It doesn't matter if the Twitter servers are powered by an overburdened hamster wheel. Windows 11, good enough, I guess. Look who finally dragged themselves across the generally available line. Now I know that Microsoft said that Windows 10 was going to be the last edition of Windows, or at least that was heavily implied. But we like numbers when they go up. How else will I know it's time to buy things, Chris? (laughs) So with great reluctance, Windows 11 was foisted upon the world on October 5th, 2021, at which point people looked at it and said, what the hell did you do to the taskbar? Never mind any other theoretical improvements to the various OS subsystems, you, you centered the taskbar? <laughs> like, did we learn nothing from Windows 8? No? Okay, well, at least we can be honest about it. Now, if you happen to jump on Windows 11 at release time out of a sense of morbid curiosity, Congratulations! You also became an unofficial and unpaid QA tester. I opted for the upgrade on my Surface Laptop 4 and results were mixed for the first few months. However, with the help of 
me, and thousands of other unpaid interns, Microsoft has ironed out enough bugs to pronounce on May 17th, 2022 that Windows 11 is designated for broad deployment. That's a direct quote. Which is corporate passive aggressive speak for upgrade from Windows 10 now and give us more money. The specific build they are referencing is 22000.675, which came out on May 10th and is part of the 21H2 original release. 22H2 will be coming later this year, as you can tell by the name, allegedly dropping support for local accounts and forcing you to use a Microsoft or corporate account, which um, I guess we'll deal with when it comes out. Remember way back when, when we told you to patch your systems? That includes VMware systems, too. <laughs> VMware, a computer company best known for odd capitalization that annoys the crap out of spell checkers, has issues. Issues in the way of CVE exploits that rank a staggering 9.8 out of 10 on the official badness scale. The bugs were announced and patched by VMware in early April and where a remote code execution vulnerability, tracked as CVE 2022-22954 against Workspace ONE's Access and Identity Manager product, and a privilege escalation flaw, tracked as CVE 2022-22960 against the same, as well as vRealize Automation. CISA, as well as private security researchers, have seen attacks in the wild against these vulnerabilities that go back at least... To April 12th. This is not surprising considering a 9.8 out of a 10 is basically the security equivalent of leaving your family jewels in an open safe on the front yard with a blinking neon light above them that says steal these please. <laughs> Needless to say patching these is an absolute priority with U.S. federal civilian agencies and contractors being objectively forced to quote patch or remove. Needless to say, this is a level of urgency that doesn't often get resorted to. Wow. It, like, just impressive. Look out, PCIe. Here comes CXO. It's a standard in everything. Is it weird that the 3.0 CXL Compute Express Link spec is about to be released and there are no systems that run it yet? Like... No standard survives in the wild unscathed for very long. The realities of the physical world and politics of large organizations will have their due. But I digress. Looking at the current landscape of system board architecture, the way that GPUs are connected to CPUs is generally through the PCI Express bus. While that has gotten increasingly faster over years, and PCI 6.0 is on the horizon before PCI 5 has been widely adopted, for those not closely tracking stats, PCI 5 supports about 63 gigabits per second in each direction across 16 lanes, and NVIDIA just announced a PCI 5 GPU card in March of this year, although you can't actually buy it yet. The real problem is the protocols that PCI Express uses. Now, how does CXL 3.0 stack up against PCI Express 5.0? Well, CXL is actually using the same physical interfaces as PCI Express. The big difference is the protocols riding on that copper. It includes cache-coherent protocols for system and device memory. Using the protocols, CPUs can directly access memory on peripheral slots instead of just the DRAM modules. That's kind of nice. And those same peripherals, like, say, a GPU, can directly access system memory and CPU cache. Version 2.0 of CXL added switching to the mix, so you can connect multiple processors and peripherals, treating them like a pool of resources to be divided up across applications. The 3.0 spec extends the fabric outside of a single server to support clusters, all using the same CXL switching. With memory being the most expensive component in most modern data centers, the ability to pool and share memory across systems allows hyperscalers to maximize their investment. Don't expect to see CXL in a data center near you soon, 
because this type of tech will see early adopters in the hyperscalers and high performance compute customers first, and then it will trickle down to the enterprise. Introducing a new fun favorite website to follow. HTTPS colon slash slash web three is going great dot com. To this. <laughs> quote the website's headline, Web3 is going great and is definitely not an enormous grift that's pouring lighter fluid on our already smoldering planet. <laughs> the website is a news clearinghouse structured as a timeline of awful things that result from the magical world of limitless Ponzi scheme variations and outright theft by people that know that they are stealing and just don't care. Or, as it's colloquially known, Web3. The website is made and curated by a software engineer who is well-versed in blockchain. The website is also deeply sarcastic and despises Web3, which is probably why we like it so much. There is also a feature to the site called the Grift Counter, which is a running total of dollars lost to grifts and scams. As the website is a timeline, the counter increments as you go, giving you a play-by-play -play in dollars and cents. You know, real money? Yeah. As you scroll. Spoiler alert, the website goes all the way back to February 3rd, 2021, and the grift counter currently sits at $9.684 billion. Woo! And of course, a reminder that losses are always underreported due to forgotten losses, or ones that were too small to make the news, or victims that felt so much embarrassment that they did not publicly account for it. Mm-hmm. So... The grift counter is probably still underselling the situation, but still, $10 billion bilked out of the public in 16 mere months? Yowza. Man, the government is going to start getting really jealous of this. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end, so congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now, go find the closest movie theater, purchase a ticket for the new Doctor Strange movie, and instead watch Sonic 2. I guarantee it's going to be better. And you've earned it. You're worth it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things. I don't. My school district has informed me that reading things is bad and may introduce scary new ideas that my fragile mind simply cannot handle. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now.